What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So one of the things that makes humans, well, human, is the ability to make a fist. Other primates can't do this. And the commonly accepted theory as to why humans developed this ability to make a fist is that they needed to do so in order to grasp tools. But research conducted by my guests today have led them to posit a very different theory. They argue that one of the reasons we can make a fist so that we can give better knuckle sandwiches. That's right. We have a fist so we can punch. Their names are Dr. David Carrier and Dr. Michael Morgan. Dr. Carrier is a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Utah. And Dr. Morgan is an emergency room physician. Uh, When Dr. Morgan was an undergrad at the University of Utah, he worked with Dr. Carrier on two papers which explored the role of physical aggression and what it may have played in the development of the human fist. Today on the show, we discuss that idea and the theory that human bodies, especially male human bodies, evolved for fighting. Really great show. A lot of fascinating insights from uh, links to resources that we mentioned throughout the show. Check out the show notes at aom.is slash aggression. Dr. Dave Carrier and Dr. Mike Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, so you two have uh, worked together on research and published a paper that went out, I think it was last year, that caused some stir, um, and not only in academic circles, but also in the popular press. Uh, I remember reading this research. I forgot where it was. It wasn't in an academic journal. It was on some website um, about how aggression and violence in humans may have shaped the way the human body evolved. Um so before we get into the specifics of your research, I'm curious, how did you two get interested in this idea that there might be a connection between um, physical, you know, the physiology of our evolution and the sort of the, the emotions of our evolution as well? Why don't I kind of start? So, so I, I was uh, an undergrad student um, with, you know, hopes and aspirations uh, to go to medical school and um, I had been involved with some some research with Dr. Carrier's wife uh, uh, using uh, live alligators, uh, and um, Dave was doing a lot of research on uh, human locomotion uh, and energy expenditure. Uh, and he and I struck up a conversation one day, and and uh, you know, I think I had mentioned that I had had some prior martial arts training. I had two black belts, and um, you know, and so it's kind of led to this discussion of Dave's interest in uh, aggression and violence, and, and uh, yeah, things kind of spiraled from there. And you know, I've been lucky enough to kind of have him as a as a you know, a great mentor, you know, as a, 
inquisitive mind and a great intellect and, and uh, you know, asks, I think, some very important questions, questions that, that interested me as well with my uh, background and experience in, in, in fighting. And uh, for, for me, that was kind of uh, where my interest in it began. Yeah, and <clears throat> those conversations uh, is really where our, our, our focus on, on the hand uh, started. But going back a step farther, early on, this question about whether or not humans are specialized for aggressive behavior came out of some work we were doing with domestic dogs. We'd been interested in whether or not there were functional trade-offs in terms of the anatomy that allows an animal to be a very uh, efficient runner versus the anatomy that allows an animal to be an effective fighter. And we were using two breeds uh, of dogs, greyhounds and pit bulls, greyhound the runner, pit bulls the fighter. And those two breeds share some anatomical similarities with, uh, with the bipedal apes. The early bipedal apes, uh, we called the group hominins, um, were built pretty much like chimpanzees, but they were habitual bipeds. They were up running around on, on, on their hind legs. But they were relatively short and stout animals, like pit bulls. And then later, uh, several million years later, you get the evolution of, of humans, this group we call Homo. And those, uh, that anatomy is very similar to modern human anatomy in terms of the, uh, the body anatomy. Those, uh, or that anatomy is appropriate, we think, for locomotor economy. And so it was that comparison with, with the two breeds of dogs to the early forms of the bipedal apes that got us thinking about, well, maybe humans, particularly early human, or early, or early ancestors, were anatomically specialized for aggression. Um, so second question is, um, there's, you know, a longstanding debate in philosophy and sociology, biology, um, about whether or not violence is part of human nature. So, you know, some have argued that humans, particular males, are socially conditioned to be violent and aggressive, while there's another camp that argues that violence and aggression is just a natural part of being human. And it seems like from the the paper that I read, uh, you're coming from a school of thought that violence and aggression is part of our bio, might maybe part of our biology. If that's the case, I'm curious what evolutionary benefit did our early human ancestors get from being violent and aggressive? So, so I think this is a very, a very interesting um, debate, and uh, for me, it's it's hard to kind of paint as just a black and white uh, nature versus nurture. You know, I think oftentimes is the term is this, is this part of our biology or is this, you know, quote unquote, instinctual behavior versus, as you said, kind of kind of social behavior or is this behavior that we're, that we're taught. And, um, you know, I think those two ideas of uh, socialization uh, versus instinct when it comes to human behavior are so ingrained that it oftentimes it's, you know, it's impossible to separate the two of those. And we, we always try to do that, uh, you know, when we're kind of explaining these things. Um, the way I tend to look at it, uh, Brett, is, uh, you know, I think our our behaviors ultimately, and especially through uh, the early development of, of uh, man, are oftentimes influenced by the environment and the pressures that those environments put on uh, the social group, right? And the social group, in turn, had to adapt uh, and develop different behaviors and different behavior patterns 
to to kind of uh, handle the stress that the environment was putting on them. Um, and so there there certainly are situations where uh, environmental stresses uh, would probably lead to promoting or encouraging aggressive and violent behavior within any certain social structure uh, at any given time. So it's 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 uh, I think it's a it's kind of a, a, a blend of both of those things. I think that you know environmental factors affect social behaviors, which in turn affect evolutionary behaviors, uh, which you know ultimately affect the trajectory of our species. Yes, and, I, and to add to that, those those environmental factors uh, influence all species, and so there's competition at different levels in, in basically all species. One of the things that's unique to humans, which might sort of increase the, the, the stakes or increase the pressure, is that we have offspring that are incredibly dependent. Uh, we're born in, in a very immature state, and we're, it takes takes years for parents to raise a young human to the stage where they can take care of themselves and make, and make a contribution to their community. And so that investment in offspring uh, has been shown to be associated in a, in a variety of different ways in different species, associated with uh, relatively high levels of aggression, high levels of competition. And so one of the reasons why humans may be relatively violent when you compare us to other mammals, when you compare us to other primates, may be these very dependent, uh, we use the word altricial offspring that we have. And why is it that males in particular uh, of in the human species have a tendency towards violence and aggression? Well, I mean, that, that's true among mammals in general. There's, there tends to be relatively high competition among males in, in all, most species of mammals, and it's largely because they're competing for access to females. And in mammals, females make this incredibly high investment in their offspring. So there's a long period where instead of just laying eggs like a bird or a lizard, uh, the female gestates the, uh, the fetus for a period of time. And then after uh, the young are born, she nurses it. And so for most species of mammal, uh, the dad's not involved at all, uh, other than just the act of, of mating. And uh, because of that, Female mammals tend to be picky. They tend to be, they want to mate with the males that, that basically have the best genes. That puts males in the position of competing. And so humans are, are uh, similar to other species of mammals in that regard. But, you know, I do want to also put out there that it's not just strictly violence in males. You know, we don't have the, we don't have the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We don't, we don't have all the rights and, and, uh, you know, the, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but we don't own violence as, as the male of the species. Uh, I think, you know, even though uh, predominantly aggressive acts, when you look at mammalian behavior, uh, come from males, there's plenty of evidence out there, uh, you know, both in, in, you know, our closest relatives, chimpanzees, uh, but, you know, across the spectrum of, of females and engaging in violence and aggressive behavior. I think on your, uh, your site before you, you referenced the book, Demonic Males uh, by, by Rangham, I believe. Um, and he has a great accounting of, uh, you know, one of the first witnessed events of, of kind of uh, chimp uh, raiding. 
And, you know, one of the things that I think was very interesting about that first observed instance of that chimpanzee group raiding and essentially attacking another group of chimpanzees was that there were also females involved in the raiding party. Now, they didn't play as big of a role in terms of uh, kind of leading it and uh, in terms of, um, I think, some of the actual physical aggression, but they were definitely part of the of the process as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've I've read is that uh, competition or the violence between, or is it, is it conspecific? That means like that's like same species, right? So when males from other species fight, or the same species fight other males of the same species, uh, it's all it's very it's almost like a ritualistic dance, combat dance. There's a lot of posturing, and then they'll move to, you know, if that doesn't work to scare the other guy off, then they'll move to shoving, and then if that doesn't work, then they'll start. But like, the, the goal of it isn't to kill, necessarily. It's more to assert dominance and show who's the guy, who's in charge. Yeah, that's, I think I think it's, uh, it's, it's true. We, we commonly refer to these as threat displays. Uh, and, and you see them manifest in different forms in different, different, uh, species, you know, and, and, you know, an animal with, with large canine teeth that might be, you know, gnashing and bearing of the teeth and, and, uh, you know, other animals, it, it could be, you know, certain posturing, uh, posing their bodies to increase the appearance of their size and their strength. Um, so one of the things that we kind of, uh, we're thinking about that led us into some of our research, particularly uh, our, our paper about, uh, you know, the, the human fist was, uh, you know, what, what, what do humans do? What's our natural reaction when we get angry? You know, even if you, if you look at a child on a playground, you know, at, at school when they get bullied, what's one of the first things you do? Well, a lot of times it's, it's that you clench your hand into a fist. And, and a lot of times that, you know, can be our threat display as, as human beings. You know, there's obviously, you know, vocalization and, and taunting and, and teasing and insults that, you know, come out. But as far as our physical manifestation, it's that it's that that presentation of a weapon oftentimes that, that is kind of that, that threat display that's the first prelude to violence and aggression. Okay, so this is interesting. So the fist, then the human fist, the ability for the humans to make a fist, um, one of its benefits is, besides being able to grasp tools, right, um, is it, making a fist is basically you're making a weapon as a possible threat display. I mean, so can other primates make a fist or is that uniquely unique to humans? As far as we know, it, it, it is unique to humans. Uh, well, our, the human fist requires a specific uh, relationship of the proportions of the, the palm of the hand, the length of the, uh, the elements of the fingers, the length of, of the thumb. And if you look at the other extant great apes, uh, the chimps, bonobos, gorillas, they have longer fingers, a longer hand, and uh, a much shorter and weaker thumb than we do. And so they, they basically don't have the hand proportions that allow them to make a fist. And, and what we've argued is that, yes, these hand proportions that have always thought to be the human hand proportions that have always thought to be primarily about manual dexterity, uh, that's certainly true. There's no doubt because humans do so much with, our, with, with their hands. It's, it's clear that that's played an important role in the evolution of, of the shape of our hands. But the other thing that may be playing a role is 
this ability to turn it into a weapon, into a form of a club, so that the relatively delicate and vulnerable anatomy of the human hand, which is so important to uh, to our livelihood, can also be used as, as a weapon. And so what advantage does making a fist to punch provide humans in fighting? Is it, uh, does it provide more power or force? What's, what's going on there? So uh, with, the, with the first paper that we, we published looking at uh, uh, what we call the protective buttressing of the, of the hand, uh, meaning uh, the nice kind of compact uh, shape that you get when all those proportions that Dr. Carrier mentioned kind of align to form the fist, uh, we, we studied um, the force that could be delivered uh, with a formed fist versus uh, what we could kind of most approximate would be the strike delivered by, uh, say, a, a gorilla or a chimpanzee or one of, our, one of our, our closest ancestors who can't make a fist. So it's kind of an, an open hand slap or a, a, a slap with the palm or the meat of the hand. Uh, and we had uh, volunteers come into the lab, and we had uh, a couple different contraptions set up. One of them was a, a punching bag with an accelerometer. We had some force plates that we were looking at. Um, and we kind of looked at uh, the amount of force and whether the forces were higher with, with kind of this open hand, quasi-fist uh, versus a fully formed fist. And we thought for sure that maybe we'd have higher forces delivered with, with a fist, uh, but that wasn't the case. There was actually similar forces delivered between a, a slap and a, and a punch. But what we did know was that uh, when you when you kind of bring that force down to a smaller pinpoint size, you get what's called an increase in the force impulse. And and when it comes to doing damage, breaking bones, damaging soft tissues, causing fractures, um, the force impulse is really what matters. That's that that. Uh, element of the of the delivery of the force that allows damage to happen and when you have a fully formed fist and you're delivering a strike the force impulse was actually significantly higher than it was uh with uh, an open hand secondly having the ability to form a fist protects the anatomy of the hand as dr carrier said um the uh the hand you know has has uh, a number of bones that you know are frequently uh injured and fractured uh but Forming a fist allows you to make a much more stable, stiffer structure uh, with which you can deliver that blow, decreasing your chance of, of injuring the hand. And this is a common uh, a common critique of our of our research is you know people say well well people break their hands all the time in fights you know and I work in an emergency department and I see the results of interpersonal violence all the time. There's a common fracture pattern that we see called a boxer's fracture, which is a fracture of the usually the, the fifth and fourth uh, metacarpal bones uh, that occurs by someone throwing a punch and, and you know landing with the force in a way that kind of transmits force to those bones and breaks those bones. But when you actually look at some of the trauma data we have, uh, you know, you, you do see these fractures of the hand, uh, but you see a lot more uh, fractures of the face uh, compared to how how frequently the the hand is injured when you actually look at the data, so so to me that that kind of supports that you know this this ability to form this fist you know not only provides us with with a convenient uh, readily usable weapon uh, allows us to do more damage when we throw a strike 
and allows us to protect our weapon when striking. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And uh, besides the critique about the um, you know the the hand being damaged during a punch, or it's often damaged during a punch, were were there any other critiques of your 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 paper? Because yeah, I mean, I do remember it did cause cause a bit of a stir uh, in the in the press at least. Yeah, it generated a lot of a lot of uh, press about it, and. and uh, it's always kind of an interesting phenomena because, uh, you know, you, you find yourself scratching your head wondering if the people writing some of the news articles actually read the paper they or don't. actually <laughs> kind of, kind of got what we were after, but, but it, it, it you know, it, it made quite, quite a bit of kind of, you know, pop science websites, uh, because I think it's, it's an interesting, you know, kind of out there study. Um, but you know, there, there were certainly some, some other critiques and I think maybe Dave can talk to some of them, but. Yeah, I, 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 one of the most common criticisms that's repeatedly been thrown at us is that uh, we're making up a, an evolutionary story, an adaptation story, and that a more reasonable explanation is that this is these hand proportions that allow the formation of this are just a coincidence of uh, what a coincidence of the consequence of selection for manual dexterity, and that's certainly possible. But but it's also possible that selection was selection on aggressive behavior was having an influence on, on the hand proportions. And so what we're presenting is really uh, an alternative explanation that's not mutually exclusive with the original idea of, 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 of it all being about manual dexterity. We're, we're throwing in another possible uh, component that may explain the evolution of our hand proportions and the evolutions of some of the proportions and uh, uh, configuration of our face facial skeleton as well. Yeah, we'll get to the facial skeleton as well. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess the theory, I mean, I guess if I was listening to you, the theory about why your hand is the way it is, um, I just had the thoughts, make sure I'm on the same page. Like, So perhaps it evolved the way it did because of aggression. It was like we turned our hand into a, a weapon, basically. And that's right. And then be, yeah. because because of the proportions that it made, you know, tools or, you know, weapons or rocks, like holding rocks, you could use it as a force multiplier. And we're, yeah, as a consequence, we're more dexterous with our hands. So it's like aggression led to tool making. Is that the idea? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, because there's, there was, primates in general use their monkeys and the great apes all use their hands. Uh, they all have a capacity for, for manual dexterity. It's important in all groups, but we've we've taken it even farther, right? We have much greater capacity than the other than the other primates. So there's it's clear that selection for use of our hands was always there. But what we have suggested is that if you start with the hand of something that's sort of intermediate between uh, a chimpanzee hand and our hand, something that we think was close to the ancestral condition from uh, basically our ancestral condition. If you start with that hand, we think there are a number of ways you could evolve, improve, you could change the proportions in a number of ways that would improve manual dexterity. But we think there's only really one 
set of, of uh, proportions of the different skeletal elements that allow the formation of, of the human fist. And so we're arguing that, that yes, uh, certainly manual dexterity is, is an important part of, of uh, the shape of our hand. But if you want to actually explain the specific proportions, making a fist may do a better job than the use of our hand in using tools and, and, and forming or making tools. Okay. Um, so the other paper you all put out, um, which is related to the, the, the fist-making uh, paper in a way, is that the human face may have been evolved to take a punch. Um, how so, and how does our face differ from other primates? Well, that's, uh, so that, the, the impetus for that paper was uh, actually a, a critique that we had for our uh, paper with regards to the, the proportions of the, of the hand and the fist, where, you know, someone essentially said, if, you know, if my hand evolved to make a fist, then why didn't my face evolve to take a punch? And we said, well, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. And uh, so we uh, started looking back over a lot of the research of uh, kind of the, the known facial proportions of uh, kind of the hominid lineage uh, and found that, uh, that there was uh, an increase in robusticity in terms of certain proportions of the face that also happened to be uh, the areas of the face that are most frequently fractured and injured in fights, uh, we saw this increase in the in the in the strength and robusticity of these components of the face uh, for a period of time. And so we, it's not really what we expected to to find, but uh, we we started looking at some of the current uh, uh, philosophies on why the faces were so robust, and a lot of those center around uh, our diet and and having large jaws and to attach large uh, muscles of mastication to for us to adapt to a new uh, a new diet as a species. But uh, we we didn't feel that that fully explained uh, the increase of these proportions. I think maybe Dave can kind of talk to you a little bit more about the anatomic detail of it. But, but yeah, that kind of critique of, of why didn't my face evolve to take a punch led, led to this second paper that you're talking about. Yeah, and one of the things that, that's interesting is that um, there's a coincidence in terms of the timing of the evolution of these characters. So around five to six million years ago, we start to, in the fossil record, we start to see evidence of early bipedal, uh, what we call the group hominins. And this is the group that gave, eventually gave rise to humans. So they appear in the fossil record four to four or five, six million years ago. They had body proportions very similar to chimpanzees, but they were standing up on two legs. Well, at the same time that our ancestors evolved to stand on two legs habitually and walk and run on two legs. Um, the hand proportions that uh, would allow the formation of fists appear in the fossil record as well. And then at the same time that, that those two things show up, again, this is four to six million years ago, we have these, this trend towards increase in robusticity of the facial skeleton, specific, specifically of the components of the facial skeleton that break when modern humans uh, fight today. So all these things seem to be linked uh, temporarily. Okay. So, but our, so I guess maybe if I understand you, so there was a period in our uh, evolutionary history when our face got stronger, basically, but that has gone away. We, it, the human face today is pretty fragile. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and specifically, those are 
So, so when when we see you know trauma coming in, you know, from uh, interpersonal violence, uh, the most commonly fractured bones of the face are usually the the mandible. Um, in fact, I had a patient last night that had bilateral mandibular fractures as a result of getting beat up uh, by two guys in the park. Um, so we see the mandible breaks, we see the, the nasal complex, so nasal fractures break, we see uh, the zygoma break, and then we see uh, the orbit, so the, the kind of bony protective cage around the eye are most frequently broken. Um, and that's kind of where we also saw an increase in terms of robusticity in the, in the kind of the fossil record of, of, of the hominin facial proportions. And so, so what's the, why is it that it got weaker? So it's a good question and, and uh, we don't have uh, a clear answer, but, but there is um, a correlation in terms of upper body strength. So these early, uh, these early bipedal apes, the, the, what we call the Australopithecus, had great upper body strength. And that was true of uh, the early species of Homo, the, the first early humans about two million years ago. But what you see with the evolution of Homo through time is a reduction in upper body strength. And that, again, coincides with that reduction in upper body strength, which, which would be a reduction in the ability to strike with a fist, uh, is coincident with a reduction in the strength of the facial skeleton. So the other thing is that with, with uh, you know, somewhere around three million years ago, we, our ancestors started to use tools as weapons, or at least there's more evidence of that. And so the targets would have changed as well. The, the target, if, if, if there was uh, homicidal intent, would have switched possibly uh, from maybe the face to, to striking the cranium with the weapon. And so both, both the fact that we think the targets changed at least to some extent, and also there was a reduction through time of upper body strength, that may help explain why the facial skeleton during the past two million years has become less robust. So um, earlier on, we were talking about why uh, men in particular um, might be more violent and aggressive than females. The idea that men have to compete, you know, it's sexual sexual reproduction is what's driving, or sexual selection is what's driving that that tricks men have to compete. Um, With that in mind, are there differences between the physiology of men and women that make men better adapted for fighting? Definitely. And then when, when the face is, is sort of a classic example of that as well. So one of the most sexually, we use the phrase sexual dimorphism uh, to talk about anatomical physiolo- physiological differences between males and females. And one of the parts of our body that is most different, most dimorphic between males and females is in fact the facial skeleton. And again, the biggest differences between males and females are the parts of the facial skeleton that tend to break the most when, when modern humans fight. So uh, males, the, the things that the, the, the features of the face, the features of the skull that distinguish a male skull from a female skull is greater robusticity in the characters that tend to break when we fight. Greater robusticity that is, is in males rather than females. And that's, and that's not the only, the, you know, face is certainly not the only place where you see the dimorphism as well. I mean, you see it uh, in, in the, the upper extremities, you see it uh, in terms of uh, the skeletal structures and their ability to support a, a much greater uh, muscle mass than, than on females. Um, 
So you see, you see dimorphism represented throughout the entire body uh, between men and women. And, and another good example uh, that's consistent with this aggression hypothesis is that that dimorphism in body strength is most pronounced in the arms or the upper body than in than in the legs. So males and females, humans are uh, males are have greater strength in their legs than females, but the extent to which the, there's a, uh, a greater strength is more, much more pronounced in the upper body. So yeah, the idea is that men would be using their arms to throw throw punches. That's why there's that. That's right. Difference. Yeah, that's right. Basically, fighting with with, with the arms. Right. I, I think I, I one I heard one guy describe the shoulders of human males as sort of like they're the, our version of antlers, right? It's sort of um, you know how male. Um, stags they grow big antlers because they use that to in these like ritualistic battles between other males to find out who's the top guy or you know the guy with uh, a larger upper body torso and bigger arms is sort of displaying like hey i can punch really well so don't mess with me i think that's right i think we do tend to pay attention to uh the shoulders the the uh the strength in the upper arms and and possibly the strength of the neck in terms of evaluating uh, an individual's ability to, or basically evaluating their formative ability. So uh, both males and females look and can distinguish, uh, from looking at that part of the body, can distinguish a male's ability to fight. But on top of that, there's a number of studies out there that show that we can look simply at a male's face and have a pretty good, be pretty, be, have a pretty accurate assessment of their fighting ability. Just from looking at the face, gotcha. but I tend to agree with with, with uh, your uh, the observation of your friend. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, why? I'm sure people are listening to this. Like, why? Why is it important that we know or study where? Why uh, violence and aggression may have uh, influenced our physiological evolution? I mean, what 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 do you what what can we do with this information that you all are uncovering or putting out there? I think I think that's that's a, a really the meat of, of our interest in this particular field is um, you know, coming to a deeper understanding of, of of you know let's call it human nature for for lack of a a better term and you know for a long long time in the science community people people you know really wanted to hang on to this idea of the noble savage and that, and that these humans were you know, superior in a certain way because we were masters of our domain and we, we you know, weren't, uh, we had the ability to be selective of whether or not we were violent or aggressive. But, but uh, I think when you kind of look at the evidence, you know, we're, we're arguably one of the most violent species, you know, and, you know, if you look further at some of the data, we, we can kind of trend historically that, that I think we're becoming less violent as a species, but, but those, tendencies are, are still there. And my argument, and I don't know if uh, Dave would agree with me, but my argument is that um, it's, it's a lot of that is this kind of displaced uh, behavior. You know, there was a, a one point in the time in our development as a species where uh, violence was absolutely critical to our survival. You know, it meant that you were going to eat. It meant that you were going to survive. It meant that you were going to be able to mate and to carry on your your genetic uh, information um, to the next generation. 
and your ability to defend yourself, to defend your food resources, to defend your mating rights, uh, determine that, determine your survival. And I think that that's been such a huge part of our uh, of our evolution, you know, getting back to that discussion of, of these are the environmental pressures that affect our socialization and affect our, our behaviors in, in groups. Uh, but I think nowadays we, we have a very, very different society, very, very different social structures uh, that in the long, long history of, of, of human existence, you know, accounts for just a small, small fraction of time. And, and we have uh, these behaviors and these tendencies uh, that are that are kind of displaced. We no longer have the evolutionary pressures. You know, you don't have to fight for your food anymore. Um, you don't have to fight for your mate anymore. You don't have to defend your territory anymore. Uh, but but we still have, uh, I think, something about us and something inside of us uh, that that makes aggression uh, part of our makeup and part of who we are. And I, I feel that better we can understand that. Uh, the better steps we can take towards towards uh, managing that and using it responsibly and, and um, you know using that energy uh, towards towards better endeavors rather than in the harm of one another. Yes, yes, and, and to add to that, <clears throat> the if if in fact we are our, our musculoskeletal system is specialized for aggressive behavior, if that turns out to be true. Then this uh, debate about human nature, we think, basically just goes away. And what you, what you end up with is the acknowledgement that uh, a tendency towards aggressive behavior is, in fact, part of who we are. It's not all of who we are. Um, I mean, we are we have just a great as capacity for cooperation, empathy, uh, wanting to have a secure, peaceful environment in which to live in. Right? Those are both aspects of, of who we are, but I think there's value in, in at least asking the questions we're asking because it has potential to uh, resolve this this argument that's been going on for for hundreds of years about human nature. And if we can get past that argument, we can focus our attention on specifically on what we need to do to secure a more peaceful future. Um. So, Dave and Mike, where can people learn more about uh, your work and perhaps read these papers you've put out? Uh, I believe our fifth paper uh, is is on PLOS One, PLOS One. It's open access, so uh, anybody can can find it online and read read it. Um, the uh, the paper that we did looking at the, the kind of proportions of the human face was published in uh, journal biological reviews um and that one yeah you can usually access through through uh, various uh, academic libraries um but there's there's plenty of writing and criticism and critiques out there to, to kind of get through online with, with regards to this stuff um uh, dr carrier has another another paper that uh i think is in publication right now that, that that you worked on, um, looking at the strain on the hand. Yeah, that's been published as well. Yeah, okay. and uh, that's was published in a journal called Experimental Biology, Journal of Experimental Biology. Great. Well, Dr. Dave Carrier, Dr. Mike Morgan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for having us, Brett. Thank you. My guests today were Dr. David Carrier and Dr. Michael Morgan. Uh, you can find more information about their work. Just Google. Uh, 
punching fist evolution. You're going to find the, a lot of papers that they've put in and just news articles about their research. Um, and also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash aggression for links to resources that we mentioned throughout the show so you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.